0: It's Tech Biter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 355 for August 11th, 2013. This week, Photoshop has two features, one new and one improved, that can come to the aid of blurry pictures. For amusement, I thought I'd look through a computer manual from 1979. Yes, 34 years ago. In short circuits, Chrome can save your passwords, but you might not want it to. Microsoft drops the price of the Surface Pro a newspaper for Bezos, and fine art for his store. And Yahoo! plans a month of many logos. Two of the new features in the latest version of Photoshop, or perhaps more accurately, one new, one improved, are designed to make specific kinds of images better. The camera shake reduction filter can improve an image that is smeared because the camera moved during the exposure. And a preserve details option might save the day if you ever have to do something that graphics professionals say you should never do. That's increase the size of an image. So this week, let's take a look at those features. We'll start with a bad case of the shakes. Camera shake is a particularly vexing problem with close-up photography and when you're using a long lens in relatively low light. For long lenses, one of the general rules that photographers keep in mind is not to use a shutter speed that is less than the reciprocal of the length of the lens. Okay, that sounds complicated, but it's really simple. Let's say you have a 200mm lens. What's the reciprocal of 200? It's 1 200th. So, the shutter speed shouldn't be any lower than 1-200th of a second. 1-250th would be fine, 1-125th would be in the danger zone. At least that's the way things used to work. Digital cameras have simultaneously made things both better and worse. They're made better because you might have a lens that stabilizes the image. Nikon calls these lenses VR, or vibration reduction. Canon uses the term IS for image stabilization. Most point-and-shoot cameras don't have these features, but when the feature is present, the technology might allow you to use a shutter speed that's one or two stops slower than what you might expect. In the previous case, one 125th would still be acceptable, and even 1 60th might result in acceptable images. But I said digital cameras also make things worse Well, unless you have a great deal of money. The camera you're using probably doesn't have a full-frame sensor. Sensor designations make no sense because the sizes are based on 1950s technology, and that technology described the size of sensors used in old television cameras. Fortunately, though, there are only two main sizes in digital SLRs intended for consumers and semi-pros, either APS-C or Micro Four Thirds. Actually, there are slight differences between the Nikon and Canon APS-C standards, but let's not go there. Because these sensor sizes are smaller than standard 35mm film frames, they have kind of a multiplier effect on the lens. The Nikon APS-C multiplier is 1.5, Canon's APS-C multiplier 1.6, and the Micro Four Thirds multiplier 2.0. So that means a 200mm lens is the equivalent of a 300mm lens on a Nikon APS-C camera, 320mm on a Canon APS-C camera, and 400mm on a Micro Four Thirds camera. So now your minimum shutter speeds are somewhere between 1 300th and 1 400th of a second. Image blur is also a challenge for people who take close-up photos, but for different reasons. The result is the same, though. Adobe provides reviewers with images that can be used to test the various new functions, and I do use those images for testing. When it comes time to explain how the feature works here, though, I generally use one of my own images, or at least one taken by somebody in the family. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a photo of a salad that my wife created and then photographed. You can click the small image to see a larger image, and you'll see there is a fairly significant amount of image blur. A little further down the screen, you'll see an enlarged view, and at that magnification, the blur is readily apparent. One of the reasons I use my own images for testing, by the way, is that I can select an image that will be more difficult for the automated process to deal with. In this case, the blur is quite easily seen but it's also very small. That's going to make it difficult for the process to identify and fix. So let's see how it works with this really challenging image. Shake reduction is applied as a filter in the sharpen section, so selecting it is just as easy as selecting any other filter. When you take a look at the larger view on the website, you'll notice a rectangle that shows the area of the image that Photoshop thinks should be repaired. Now you can move the center of the rectangle or you can change its size. And as I'll explain in a moment, you can also add additional areas because the type of blur in one part of an image might not be the same as blur in another part of the image. The resulting image is quite an improvement. It may look a little over sharpened and it's certainly never going to be an outstanding image, but now there is more apparent detail. And that's with just one section of the photograph affected. I decided the lower right part of the photo needed some help too, so I added a second shake reduction area. And the final result, be sure to compare it with the original image in the sequence on the website, is substantially different. You can control the amount of sharpening. I've pushed it just a little harder than necessary to emphasize the differences between the before and after versions. In actual practice, I probably wouldn't push the sharpening quite that far. And another problem that we run into is maybe you have a small image. That's all you have, but you'd like to print an enlargement. Well, a photo that's 640 by 480 pixels is going to look just fine on the screen but if you try to print it as a 5x7, that image is going to have an effective resolution of just 90 dots per inch. 90. And a photograph needs about 200 to 300 dots per inch for decent quality. For an 8x10, that small image's effective resolution would be about 65 dpi. That's worse than an old newspaper. Photoshop has had the ability to upsample images for years, and it can achieve acceptable results, but the new intelligent upsampling improves the process. So, on the TechBiter worldwide website, you'll see an image of a cat. What else? It's scampy, and he looks just fine on screen, but I decided that I wanted to create a much larger copy that I could actually print, so I did a side by side comparison with the old method and the new method. I'm enlarging the image to 400% of its original size, four times what the original was. So the final size of the image, instead of 640 by 480, is going to be 2560 by 1920. That's enough for a print resolution of about 250 dpi for an 8 by 10. I certainly would never want to do this unless you absolutely had to, because upsampling an image is always going to degrade the quality. So I started with what's called Bicubic Smoother, that's what we had previously, and it's the best that Photoshop could do prior to the Creative Cloud version. Then I repeated the process on another image, and you'll see them side by side on the website. The settings are identical except that this time I selected Preserve Details instead of Bicubic Smoother. A 400% enlargement is an enormous change. Photoshop will need to fill in many megabytes of details that simply aren't present in the original. It's the difference between a photo that holds a bit less than one megabyte worth of data and an image that holds more than 14 megabytes of data. So Photoshop has to make up 13 megabytes of information From one megabyte of information, and that 13 megabytes of information simply isn't there. Maybe I should use the word interpolate. Does that sound better than make-up? Well, take a look at the side-by-side comparison on the site, the old way on the left, the new way on the right, and yes, there is a lot of sharpening and a lot of noise in the image on the right, but that means the made-up parts of the image are going to appear to have a lot more detail when they're printed. This is another case in which the resulting image is never going to be an outstanding photograph, but it might be enough to serve your intended purpose. And if you're really interested, I have included both the original and the enlarged images, the full-size images, 2560 by 1920 You can download them and take a look at them side-by-side on your screen. These are two of the new features in the Creative Cloud version of Adobe Photoshop. Because the applications are now being updated constantly, I've chosen not to rate individual applications or even to show all of the features of any one application. Instead, I'll just tell you about features that seem most noteworthy as I identify them. Details and pricing for Creative Cloud are on Adobe's website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. (music) many ways adobe software is leading us toward the future of computing for example software that is effectively leased or rented with a license that has a set start and end date software that can automatically update itself as new features are released was anyone thinking about this kind of stuff in 1979 well probably not but then again you might be surprised to see just how far in the future some people's minds were 34 years ago. I've talked about the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center previously because it is the place where most modern computing was invented. The graphical user interface, the mouse, many of the protocols that were on the internet, object-oriented programming, the laser printer, desktop computers, and even notebook computers all trace their heritage back to Park. Xerox was never able to wring a profit out of Park, and had the operation been located closer to the company's headquarters in Connecticut, it probably would have been shut down. Fortunately, it was distant all the way in California, and as a result, the engineers there gave us the earliest versions of the tools that we all take for granted today. You'll see a picture of a desktop computer called the Alto, On the TechBiter Worldwide website, the Alto could be considered the first desktop computer, and I have mentioned it previously. The screen sat on the desk, along with a keyboard and a mouse. But the main part of the system, it was actually under the desk. Thanks to listener Wolfgang Gunther, I have a copy of the Alto User's Handbook. I've had it since January, and looking through it has provided some fascinating insights. There are stories of park engineers looking at pizza boxes and wondering why a computer couldn't be constructed that would be about the size and shape of a pizza box. It could fold open, they thought, with a screen on one side and a keyboard on the other. Of course, that was long before flat screens were invented, and when even floppy disk drives were the size of shoeboxes. Oh my goodness. Engineers and pizza. Who would have thought? The manual you'll find on the TechBinder Worldwide website looks nothing at all like today's software manuals. For one thing, the most current software and hardware don't have printed manuals these days, and only a few even have PDF manuals. Back then, the manual had to explain everything about how the system could and should be used. and there were no pictures, no screenshots, just text, not even any big fancy headlines. I did find a little sexism on page one, though. As forward-thinking as the engineers were, they seemed to assume that the operator of the Alto would be a man, and that the man would have no clue how to obtain replacement parts. For that, ask your secretary. I quote, To do anything with an Alto, you must have a disc pack. This is a circular yellow or white object, about 15 inches in diameter and 2 inches high. Your secretary can tell you how to obtain a new one from the stock kept by your organization. And we find out about SWOT. That's the early version of Control-Alt-Delete, or if you have a Mac, Command-Option-Escape. Again, I quote, You can usually stop what's going on and get back to the executive by holding down the left-hand shift key and striking the SWAT key, which is a blank key in the lower right corner of the keyboard on the Alto 1s and the upper right corner on the Alto 2s. If this doesn't work, you can push the boot button. And there was a section on file servers. Yes, file servers did exist in 1979, at least at PARC, and they were used for storing files and printing. That meant network technology was available too. Now, keep in mind that this was just nine years after the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network, or ARPANET, had been expanded with connections from coast to coast. Here's what the manual said about file servers. A file server's disk typically has hundreds of times the capacity of your own Alto disk. Moving the non-current files to a file server is a way to free up space on your own disk for other things. And a file server is a good place to put documents you want other people to be able to get at. Are you enjoying this? I am. Printing certainly was complicated in those days. It's a little less complicated today, but, you know, printers still have the capacity to befuddle even talented programmers. Maybe that should be especially talented programmers. The auto Manual talked about printing this way. The subject of printing is somewhat complicated because of the large number of variables involved. To begin with, there are many different programs you can use to prepare documents for printing. Bravo, Draw, Markup, Sill, etc. And then there are various file formats defining the representation of documents stored in files. Bravo format, press format, plain text, etc. Finally, there are several different types of printers. Dover, Sequoia, Slot 3100, Pimlico, etc. They really like the word etc. And yes, there were typefaces back then too, well before John Warnock and Charles Getschke founded Adobe. But they were working at Park in the Alto days. Take a look on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see they had Times Roman, Helvetica. Oh, and that's about it. How about new software releases? Well, you couldn't just hop on the internet and download them because the internet didn't yet exist. The file transfer protocol, or FTP, did exist, and those located at the few locations that were actually connected via ARPANET could certainly obtain files that way. There's a fairly long section in the manual explaining how to get your new software. And then there was this little block on the desk beside the keyboard. It was called a mouse. And no, Steve Jobs did not invent the mouse. That was Douglas Engelbart at Park. A section of the Alto Manual explains how to use it. You'll find that the mouse works better if you hold it so that it bears some of the weight of your hand. If the cursor doesn't move smoothly when the mouse is moving, try turning the mouse upside down and spinning the ball in the middle with your finger until the cursor does move smoothly as the ball moves. If this doesn't help, your mouse is broken. Get it fixed. Get it fixed? You'd actually fix a mouse. You wouldn't just buy a new one. but well, you couldn't go to a store and buy one because they didn't exist in stores. The manual continues. You can pick the mouse up and move it over your work surface if you find that it isn't positioned conveniently. For instance, if you find the mouse running into the keyboard when you try to move the cursor to the left edge of the screen, just pick up the mouse and set it down further to the right. Yeah, in those days, you had to explain things like that. It was also very important in those days to save any document you were working on frequently, and then you had to clear the computer's memory and reload the document. Forget to do that, and you might run out of memory. Memory, both RAM and magnetic, was extremely expensive in 1979, so the largest document that an Alto could edit was about 65,000 characters. Now, a typewritten page contains about 1,250 characters, so the Alto would max out at about... 50 pages. And there was a discussion of Windows. And no, Steve Jobs did not invent the windowed computing environment. And actually, Bill Gates didn't steal it from Steve Jobs. They both pretty much stole it from Park. The Alto made it possible to work on several documents simultaneously all the way back in 1979. Jobs was 24 at the time. And if you're keeping track, I was 22. Here's the Alto manual again. So far, you've worked with a single document in a single window. Bravo will let you work on several documents at the same time, each in its own window. This is convenient if you want to compare two documents or copy something from one to another, say, from an address list into a letter. You can also have several sub-windows looking into the same document, which is nice when you want to copy something from one part of the document to another or check something on another page without losing your place. And if Bravo breaks... Now, when Bravo breaks or crashes. What usually happens is that SWAT gets called. The manifestation is a couple of seconds of whirring from the disk followed by a mostly blank display on the screen with the words SWAT version XX at the top. If this happens, look at the bottom of the screen where there will be a more or less intelligible message. In some cases, the message may describe a condition you can do something about. For example, your disk is full or it might inform you of a parity error. If this happens repeatedly, you should file an ALTO trouble report to get your ALTO repaired. See Section 5.1 of the ALTO Non-Programmer's Guide. A third possibility is some fairly meaningless message describing an internal Bravo malfunction. In any case, after looking at the message, you should type K followed by Enter. If that doesn't work, boot the ALTO. Then, if you want to recover your work, you can proceed as described below. So, no, Bill Gates did not invent the blue screen of death, although the Alto's wasn't blue. When something went wrong, the Alto could simply display a completely baffling message about what went wrong. And it would seem nothing much has changed in the past 34 years. If you'd like to see the entire manual, you can download it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It is a fairly large file, though, more than 7 megabytes. That's because it's a scanned copy of the original manual. They couldn't make a PDF back then because Warnock and Gresky were still working at Park and hadn't yet invented PDFs. But look at all this. By 1979, Park had all the forerunners for much of the hardware and some of the software that we consider indispensable today. (laughs) short circuits, it's not uncommon for people to have browsers store passwords. Internet Explorer can do it, Firefox can, Chrome can. Most of these are somewhat less than secure, but people continue to use them at a time when services such as LastPass are available. You could be giving your passwords away. At the outset, I need to make one thing very clear. This is what programmers call an edge condition, something that can happen, but isn't particularly likely to happen. If you use Chrome on a single computer and your account is not accessible to others who might use the computer, it's really not a significant threat and you could ignore the rest of this babble. But if you use Chrome on multiple computers and you use Chrome's synchronizing feature to update passwords on all the computers, your passwords might be at risk. This isn't something that Google plans to fix either. It's a known problem or a non-problem as far as Chrome's managers are concerned and they feel it's not something worth fixing. Developer Elliot Kember has provided an explanation of how the problem works. Somebody who's curious about your stored passwords could just open the settings panel, display the advanced settings, and then take a look at passwords and forms. It all looks safe enough because the passwords are obscured by asterisks, but click any password and you'll see a new button. That button is labeled Show. And when the curious person clicks it, Passwords are displayed in plain text. For someone to have access to your passwords, they would need access to your computer, and it would be necessary for you not to use a login password with Chrome, or to give someone your password for Chrome. So if you use Chrome and other people can gain access to your account on any of your computers where Chrome is installed, you might want to take a look at your security procedures. saw this one coming. Microsoft recently dropped the price of the Surface RT tablet by $150, but left the price of the more powerful Surface Pro where it was. The Pro is the tablet that can run standard Windows applications and not just Metro apps. Well, now the Surface Pro's price has dropped by $100. It's a limited time offer, though, and it ends on August 29th, The price reduction applies to both 64GB and 128GB versions, so now the prices for tablets are $800 and $900, respectively. The published prices are, of course, $799 and $899. Some marketers still seem to think that they can fool people into thinking that $800 is really $700 and $900 is really $800. Microsoft says they've seen a great worldwide success with lower prices of the Surface RT. There's no question that the Surface tablets have a lot of useful features, but they still haven't been selling very well. Surface tablets are available from stores, online, and at Microsoft's website. You'll find a link to Microsoft's website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos has joined the news biz, and Amazon is offering fine art. I suspect there is no relationship here at all, but it has been kind of a busy week in Seattle. Bezos bought the Washington Post. Maybe he thought it was a newspaper in Washington State instead of Washington, D.C. And then his company, Amazon.com, announced that it'll begin selling fine art online. And I am just kidding. I actually, I know that Bezos knows that the Washington Post is in Washington, D.C. And actually, I am looking forward to seeing what innovative ideas he's going to bring to the newspaper business. A figure if anybody can determine a way to make newspapers work in today's digital age, he's probably the one. But to get back to art, more than a decade ago, Amazon tried an experiment with the well-known auction house Sotheby's it didn't last very long. This time around, Amazon is working with about 150 art galleries and dealers who will sell original art and limited edition artworks on Amazon Art. You'll find a link on the Techbiter Worldwide website. Currently, the site features about 4,500 artists. It shows more than 40,000 works of art, and they range in price from a few hundred dollars to nearly five million dollars. Amazon.com always offers a wealth of information about products it sells, and so is the case with Amazon Art. By the way, Amazon Art still carries a beta tag, so watch out for wet paint. The site provides background information about the work shown, the artist, and the artwork's exhibition history. (laughs) When radio stations plan to change formats, they often play the same piece of music over and over and over for a weekend or maybe an entire week. Apparently, that's something program managers learn in program manager school. Perhaps the thought is that listeners who stumble across the station will check back from time to time just to see if that silly song is still playing. Maybe they'll even add the station to the presets in their car just so they can do that easily or something like that. Well, Yahoo is trying a variation on that theme. For the next 30 days, the Yahoo Portal's logo will change every day. At the end of the period, a new permanent logo will take its place, according to Yahoo's chief marketing officer, Kathy Savitt. Yahoo has been making lots of changes recently, making people come into the office to work, for example. And Savitt says the new logo will affect Yahoo's rapid changes and its renewed sense of purpose. Perhaps we should be grateful that Yahoo didn't spend two years creating a mission statement that could be written by an average business administrator class in about an hour. Don't laugh, I've seen it done. Savitt says that Yahoo has introduced beautiful new products that have changed the way visitors see the weather, Read email, share photos, and follow sports teams. We've partnered with great artists, she said, to take Yahoo on the road. And she pointed to the acquisition of Tumblr as another example of Yahoo's new present and its possible future. The new logo will be a modern redesign that's more reflective of our reimagined design and new experiences, Savit said in typical marketing speak. And that's why Yahoo will display a different variant of the logo every day for a month. It's our way of having some fun, she said, while honoring the legacy of our present logo. And if you miss one, Yahoo will allow you to collect the entire set online. Be the first in your neighborhood to have them all. Or if you want to be among the first to see the new logo, set a calendar reminder for midnight Eastern Time the morning of Thursday, September 5th. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Tech Biter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about twenty minutes. All music on Tech Biter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blynn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.